If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code twelve twelve and get forty dollars off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code twelve twelve. Sleepcoolnow.com twelve twelve. This is a special edition of the World According to Zig podcast. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where, among other things, you can find the truth about what really did and did not happen at Penn State with regard to the whole Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky alleged scandal. And that is the subject of this special edition of the podcast, doing this uh, for several reasons, which will become very obvious uh, later in this upcoming week, HBO is going to be airing a movie entitled Paterno uh, that is largely, if not entirely, about the so-called scandal. And uh, because that event is happening on April the 7th, for the last several months, although it was never intended at first to be connected to the movie, we thought it would be out way before this, I have been directly involved in a major effort to get out the counter-narrative of that entire story, one that the news media has never allowed to be aired in any legitimate fashion because they are completely and totally 110% invested in a fairy tale. They are, as I've said many times, like five-year-olds who are invested in Santa Claus. They do not want to hear anything that uh, brings any doubt into their Santa Claus narrative because they're so deeply, deeply invested in it. Now, if you know anything about me, you know uh, that I do not deal well with ambiguity. Ambiguity is not my strong suit. And uh, unfortunately, as I have talked to you over the last several months about this uh, project, I've had to be ambiguous uh, because I did not feel as if I was in a position to be able to be completely forthcoming or transparent, which is my normal policy. It's in my DNA. Uh, Some people even think it's pathologically in my DNA to tell the truth no matter what the situation is and no matter uh, who, you know, whether or not I get harmed by it or not. So it's, it's literally against my being to not tell the full truth of what I know, but I could not because I did not want to jeopardize the effort that was being made. Well, now I am far more free to tell the truth of what has been transpiring over the last several months. And so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to just lay it all out. 
in a linear fashion. I'm going to tell you exactly what has happened and what I know and where we're going to go from here. It's a fascinating story, and it's one that you're only going to hear here. Uh, I can assure you of that. Uh, but it's all 100% uh, true. So here's the situation. So for the last couple of years, there have been uh, several people very, very close to the story who have suddenly realized that the whole thing is a fraud. In fact, those who are closest to it are far more likely to believe that than, for instance, members of the media who really only know a Reader's Digest version or a Twitter version of this story. And I'm talking about members of the Penn State Board of Trustees. I'm talking about uh, those uh, Penn State administrators who were charged in this case. I'm talking about uh, you know, people who are directly involved, family members of those who are directly involved, people who know the accusers. It's becoming very, very obvious. Now, trying to prove this was always going to be exceedingly difficult because you're trying to prove a negative and you're, trying, you're going against an incredible tidal wave of bullcrap. As I said, everyone is invested in this, uh, this narrative that I believe is, I know to be, is a fairy tale. So in order to try to get the information that we have accumulated out, we, we needed some sort of a mainstream media outlet. And finding that was going to be basically impossible because of this investment that I had referenced. But last year, something extraordinary seemingly happened, which was we finally got a break what appeared to be a huge break. And that is that a guy by the name of Bob Rowe became the top editor at Newsweek magazine. Now, the reason why this was significant were a couple of reasons. Number one, Bob, way back when, had worked as a reporter on the so-called McMartin preschool sex abuse case here in California many years ago, which turned out to be a total fraud. And so because of that experience, he was very understanding of how something like what we were alleging may have actually happened. Now, he didn't know enough of the facts to know for sure that that's what occurred, but he certainly understood how it could happen. And he saw a lot of the same signs of the hysteria that surrounded that particular case and this hysteria that surrounded this one. And he also had a prior relationship with Ralph Cipriano, who was a guy who I brought into this case uh, because he had done some very similar work on the Catholic Church abuse scandal in Philadelphia, where there was one particular case where he has done some reporting for Newsweek that indicated that, the, that that story was not based in reality or in fact. And at first, by the way, this was a very, very long process. This was years ago I first contacted Ralph. And at first he was not interested. And I'm sure he's wishing today that he, that he had uh, remained not interested. But eventually he got roped in and he became just as convinced as me and some other people that this, in fact, really was all a fraud and that Jerry Sandusky is not a pedophile and that this was a perfect storm of perfect storms, not a conspiracy. It's very important that people understand I'm not alleging a conspiracy. And in another hour that I'm going to put out there this week directly related to the Paterno movie, I'll explain how this really did happen. And it's not a conspiracy. In short, it's basically everyone becoming self-interested in a myth and then you know, an avalanche rolling down a hill with nothing to stop it. So anyway... Uh, so because of that, um, Bob 
effectively commissioned Ralph to do a story on this entire Penn State saga from the perspective of, is it possible that everything we think we know is wrong? And in the process of doing that, Ralph got leaked an enormous number of documents, boxes and boxes of documents that have never been seen before. These are documents mostly related to the Penn State settlements, which have now totaled $118 million to 36 accusers of Jerry Sandusky. And also that related to the Free Report. This was the report by the former FBI director, Louis Free, that the media touted as proof that this really was a cover-up and that Joe Paterno was culpable and the administrators all knew that Jerry Sandusky was a pedophile and protected him for some bizarre, unknown, nonsensical reason, even though he was retired. And uh, this was supposedly about avoiding negative negative publicity, which is was just completely and totally... It's just flat-out ridiculous. It was an absurdity. And, um, and so... As part of this project, Ralph knew, obviously, I had information no one else had, expertise no one else had, and uh, understanding of the case no one else had. And I also, uh, he knew, um, had knowledge of a purposely fake accuser that had gone to the most important lawyer in this case, a guy by the name of Andrew Shubin, and Shubin's go-to therapist, a woman by the name of Cynthia Mc- McCade, I'm sorry, McNabb, <laughs> Cynthia McNabb. And, um, and so, and that had gone on for over three years. And we had very reliable and extensive documentation of everything that had transpired as they embraced this purposely fake accuser. And I'll tell you more about how, how that whole thing went down, which is just mind-blowing. But uh, that was clearly our, our, you know, one of our sexiest pieces of information because this uh, effect, you know, basically a sting operation had shown not just that the main lawyer and the therapist were exceedingly gullible into believing a completely fake accuser, but it was what they did to facilitate this fake accuser's story and why they did it, which was really as close to a smoking gun as you're going to get in this case. So Ralph agreed to have me be his co-writer on this story for Newsweek. And uh, after Ralph agreed to that in writing, that no matter what, come hell or high water, he and I are in this together, blood brothers in the, uh, (laughs) you know, till till death do us part, basically. And and, um, uh, I decided, okay, um, with that agreement, I will, and Newsweek agreed to pay my basic expenses. I didn't want to be paid a salary. Ralph was being paid a, a commission on this or a, a fee, whatever you want to call it, as a freelancer. Uh, all I wanted was my hard costs. And they said, okay, well, you know, you can fly to Philadelphia to see these, uh, these documents, which I did last October. And these documents are just amazing uh, from so many different perspectives. But I spent two days in a hotel room uh, going through them all and getting copies of some of the most uh, important pieces of information. And, um, you know, basically what we now had was the names of all of the accusers who had gotten paid, which is something that's never been public. The only people that have been public are 
the eight people who testified at Sandusky's trial, and then a couple of others like Matt Sandusky, the former adopted son of Jerry and Dottie, uh, who made himself a public figure, and a couple other people who made who did interviews um, effectively because they were trying to pressure Penn State into giving them money. So effectively, I'd say about 10 or 11 uh, of these 36 were already known. But now we know who all of them are. We also know how much money they got, each of them. And this it was just stunning, a lot of it. Uh, like, for instance, just as far as the money is concerned, there was one particular accuser named Sebastian Payton, who's so-called victim number nine, who had the most graphic of allegations against Sandusky, but he's also a guy who came forward, actually didn't even come forward. His mom came forward for him. And I believe it was because she thought this was a great excuse for why her son turned out to be a loser. Uh, you know, th and by that way, that happened a lot in this case. A lot of, in a lot of these situations, moms effectively wanted their sons to have been abused by Jerry because it was a perfect excuse for why they turned out to be losers. Uh, and maybe that was even subconscious. And I'm, not, I'm also of the belief that some of them saw dollar signs. It's a nice combination. When you get to rationalize why your son's a loser and you get a lot of money out of it, that's a pretty powerful combination. But anyway, this Sebastian Payton, this was after Joe Paterno was fired. He originally said nothing happened. Then all of a sudden he's... he's uh, claiming all sorts of horrendous rape uh, as late as 2009. This is when Jerry was arrested in 2011. And um, I have been told, I was not at the trial, but I was told by uh, people I consider to be very credible that of all the accusers at trial, he was the least credible. That his story just didn't make any damn sense. Uh, I mean, he's, he's admitting uh, as a late teenager going to uh, football games with Jerry Sandusky way after he is supposedly being anally raped horribly uh, in the basement while screaming in a basement where anybody can hear anything. And Dottie Sandusky is baking cookies in the in the kitchen. And I mean, it's just it is just totally absurd. The, the, the story is absurd at every level. And yet Sebastian Payton, according to the documents we had, got paid 20 million dollars. $20 million. And the reason why he got paid $20 million is because his lawyers got access to the free report documents. So this was a purely a leverage play. The Penn State Board of Trustees cried uncle because his lawyers basically said the magic words. We want the free documents and they got they got access to them. Now, I don't know whether they actually got them, but they got the legal access to them. And maybe that was enough for Penn State to say, OK, enough. How much do you want? So here's $20 million. And we have a Facebook posting from Sebastian Payton uh, very soon after his claim against Penn State was filed, uh, bragging very in a cryptic way, using a lot of profanity, but uh, shit man balling like a motherfucker money um, it, on his Facebook page. That's what he posted just after he uh, had filed or his lawyers had filed uh, this claim that would end up uh, getting him $20 million. Obviously, his lawyers got a lot of that. Um, but this is just one of the stories. Uh, it, it completely an absurdity. But uh, there are so many things that we learned that are critical to understanding what really did and did not happen. Like, for instance, 
people fail to understand that when Jerry Sandusky was arrested, there were six people. They were male adults, with one exception. One was still a teenager, victim number one, Aaron Fisher, but he was an, an older teenager by this point. So I think he might even mean technically adult by that point. Anyway, the point is there were no children involved here. These are male adults for all intents and purposes. Six of them at the time of the arrest, the time of Joe Paterno's firing, who claimed some sort of sex abuse. That's a much smaller number than people, I think, would would think that they understand this case to, to have. Also, only two of those six claimed what are, were clearly sex acts. And I know people say, well, John, why are you making the distinction? Well, I'm making the distinction not because <laughs> acts of grooming or or slight, uh, you know, abuse that doesn't include uh, actual sex acts. I'm not suggesting that that is in any way, shape or form justifiable. It's absolutely horribly wrong. But the difference is it's a hell of a lot easier to lie or fib about, yeah, I took a shower with Jerry Sandusky and he uh, made me touch his erection. That's pretty easy for a guy if he thinks he's going to get some money out of it. Then for a guy to say, yeah, I got anally raped by an old man. Okay. So, so I, 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 there's an important distinction to be made there. And at the time of Sandusky's arrest, only two people are making it very clear that they're willing to say, Hey, um, I had I was forced into a sex act with Jerry Sandusky. And interestingly, both of them ended up having the same therapist, which is not a coincidence. And both of them ended up getting paid many, many millions of dollars. Well, anyway, of those six, two of them, number three and number five, Jason Semesco is number three and Michael K. Jack is number five. Those two at trial, at Jerry's trial, said that they were basically groomed, that they, as I said, it was very light abuse, if you want to call it that. I was forced to touch an erection or, you know, nothing remotely close to a sex act, okay? Well, here's how we know there's a big problem, because now we know what, we, what they both told Penn State when it, time, it came time to get their money, because what happened was their lawyers figured out that Penn State was paying based upon a fairly set series of criteria. And one of the criteria was, how bad was your abuse? And so now all of a sudden, we have the documents that show that what they told Penn State wasn't just a little bit different from what they told the court under oath when they knew they would be subject to cross-examination. No, what they told Penn State when they knew there would be no cross-examination and there was no expectation that anybody was ever going to find out about this because these records are sealed and there's never going to be a Ralph Cipriano or a John Ziegler who uh, gets this information and gets it out to the public in some way. Uh, I, what we found out was now all of a sudden they're being raped and forced into oral sex dozens and dozens of times. And maybe my favorite line in all of the settlement documents comes from number three, Jason Semesco's uh, settlement questionnaire. They, had, they gave all these, these accusers questionnaires. And the I'm assuming written by the lawyer, the lawyers for Jason actually write, without a hint of irony or outrage, apparently, that, quote, the full extent of Jason's abuse was not 
elicited at trial. <laughs> In other words, which, by the way, must have shocked the living daylights out of the prosecution. Wait a minute. We had a guy who was raped and forced into oral sex and sodomized and dozens and dozens of times, and he never said this at trial? Wait a minute. How is this possible? Well, it's because it wasn't elicited. Like, like the prosecution failed to ask him about it. No, here's what really happened. Jason realized that in order to get all the money that he might be able to get to, he needed to completely make up a story. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important, obviously, because, well, hell, under the best case scenario, both Jason and Michael are effectively admitting to perjury. That's essentially what's happening. <laughs> they're, they're, they perjured themselves by not telling the full extent of the abuse that they experienced. But here's what really happened. They were scared of being cross-examined, and they didn't want to go too far at trial because their actions make no sense. Their stories make no sense. And Michael Ch Kajak's timeline makes no sense. He changed when this happened numerous times by several years. And his story makes no sense because his original story was when Jerry forced him to uh, touch his erection, he didn't know what an erection was because he was only eight, not eight years old. Okay, fine. But here's the problem. Once he changes the date three or four years later, he's no longer eight years old. <laughs> and he can't claim he doesn't know what an erection is. So in the K-Jack story is really extraordinary because, uh, Kajak ends up testifying at the trial of Graham Spanier, who is the former Penn State president. And in between his Jerry Sandusky trial testimony and his Graham Spanier trial testimony, he provides Penn State with this completely different story of numerous sex acts, because that's how you get the money. But Spanier's lawyers don't know about this. So they can't even question him I don't know if they would have anyway, because they lacked the balls to do so. They can't even question him. So they, uh, to, about the, these completely, 100%, radically inconsistent statements. So, so he goes from very benign abuse, tells Penn State horrific abuse, and then goes back to very benign abuse under oath in what results in Graham Spanier being convicted on a misdemeanor, a misdemeanor that even the jury foreman said the next day was a, a, a bad verdict. So we, so this is just the tip of the iceberg of what we're, we're learning from these, these documents. We also learn the identities of the 1970s accusers. The 1970s accusers are the one who put the final nail in the coffin of Joe Paterno's legacy. And they were clearly purposely leaked. The 1971 accuser is named Randy Tice. The 1976 accuser is named as Michael Quinn. Why are they important? Well, now that we know their identities, we know how utterly ridiculous their stories are. Well, by the way, we also know the, the details of their stories. The 1971 story is flat out absurd. And this one, the idea that this played a major role in destroying the, the reputation uh, of uh, um, Joe Paterno after he's already dead and cannot even defend himself, is one of the most striking, startling, depressing elements of an incredibly depressing case. But here's a guy, Randy Tice, who claims, and Sarah Gannam interviewed him and didn't air the interview. Gee, I wonder why. Sarah Gannam, now of CNN, the one who won the Pulitzer Prize for this case, 
as a total fraud back as a 23-year-old part-time reporter at a small newspaper who's never done anything of any real relevant sense, even while, even while CNN. She interviewed him, but never air, aired the interview, only did an, a web story about it. But she never mentioned that the crux of his story is, among other things, that not only that he, he got picked up hitchhiking by Jerry Sandusky in 1971 and immediately given alcohol and marijuana, two things Jerry has never touched in his life, but he was then immediately brought back to Penn State and raped in the showers uh, or, or the bathroom area. And in, during the course of that rape, he, Tice somehow knocks out some of Jerry's teeth. And there's, there's no evidence at all that Jerry has ever had any dental surgery at that time period. Franco Harris was on that team in 1971. He says there's, no one remembers anything like that. People would remember if Jerry Sandusky had gotten some un, mysterious, unknown uh, dental uh, injury or surgery. And then, of course, he supposedly tells Joe Paterno and the athletic director via a conference call, I guess, in 1971. Go figure out how that happens. I guarantee you they didn't have conference calling in 1971 in Penn State. He tells uh, Joe Paterno that Jerry had done this, done this to him and that Joe effectively tells him to, you know, go pound sand. I, I don't I don't want to be bothered with this. Now, that story is absurd on its face. Except. We have Facebook. It's even more absurd because we have Facebook photos now that we know who Randy Tice is. Randy Tice has been going to Penn State football games his entire life. We have photographs of Randy Tice with his whole family, including his daughter and his wife, in Penn State garb at Penn State football games in the last few years, even after having made this claim against Penn State, which is just, it's, it's absurd. You, if you had been raped... <laughs> You have been raped by a Penn State football coach and the and the, the legendary Joe Paterno told you to, to go away. Would you be a lifelong Penn State football fan? Would your would you let your daughter become a lifelong Penn State football fan? Would your daughter, when Joe Paterno got fired, post on Facebook how depressed she was that Joe Paterno had been fired? Would that happen? No. None of that would happen. But see, we but we only know all this because now we have the identity of who the person is. And we know the story to be utter bullcrap. And oh, by the way, his lawyer is Andrew Shubin, the same lawyer we have a fake accuser who did a sting operation on for over three years. Not a surprise. As far as Michael Quinn, Michael Quinn is blown up, not just by the absurdity of his story, which is that he, he sought out Joe Paterno and only told Joe Paterno that this happened. <laughs> No one else. And then Joe Paterno told him to go away. He got a football team to, to get ready for. But um, <laughs> but the reality is that uh, his own lawyer destroys his, his story because his lawyer is a guy by the name of Slade McLaughlin, who's, whose partner is Michael Bonney. Michael Bonney, not realizing that it was ever going to be known who the 1976 accuser was and therefore that Effectively he, effectively, he represented him, the same law firm. Michael Bonney is quoted as saying he has seen no evidence, no credible evidence that Joe Paterno was ever told about Jerry Sandusky. And, and he's a guy who says, I don't even like Joe Paterno. I'm not defending him. But I've seen no evidence that any of this is real about Joe Paterno being told about Jerry Sandusky many years ago. This is his own lawyer. But... No one wants to put all this together. So we had that. 
As far as uh, Sarah Ganim, we have emails now from her to Graham Spanier proving that she was getting leaks from the Attorney General's Office of Pennsylvania. By the way, incorrect leaks, inaccurate leaks, done for a specific purpose. They were using her as a weapon. They were using her originally to find new victims because they couldn't find any victims. And then as she proved to be very productive for them, they continued to leak her information because she was doing their bidding and it worked for everybody. We have that. As far as the free report, we have the free report work product in which on the front page, the first page of the, of the confidential free report work product, the first paragraph is about how the Penn State Athletic Department had a culture that allowed, this is the so-called football culture, that allowed for them to cover up the crimes of Jerry Sandusky. Why is this interesting? Handwritten at the top of the page by someone who works for Louis Free. This is from the Free Group. Handwritten, capital letters, no evidence of this exclamation point. First paragraph. First paragraph. We have an email from Sue Paterno to a person directly related to this case, integral to this case. Completely blowing up Mike McQueary's story about what happened when he went to go see... Joe Paterno about what he supposedly saw involving Jerry Sandusky and a boy in the shower. This is the main episode in the whole case. Why is that important? Well, two reasons. Sue Paterno, the widow of Joe Paterno, was there that day. Number two, she has an incredible memory, legendary memory, steel trap mind. And she now says in an email, which we have, that Mike McQuarrie, all this hullabaloo over this meeting with Joe Paterno and all the things he supposedly told him, and Joe was supposed to know exactly what had happened and act on it and supposedly, what, call the police? I don't know. It lasted three minutes. Those, that's a direct word, the direct quote from Sue Paterno. Three minutes, not five, not 10, not 15. Three minutes. Three minutes, which, by the way, not only makes it impossible for Mike to have told Joe Paterno anything of significance in three minutes because Joe was getting ready to leave to go to a banquet that night, which Sue remembers very well. But it also proves that Mike's embellishment over the years of that meeting and what was said there are, is completely fabricated. It's a lie. It's a complete lie. Whether Mike has, has rationalized it and now believes it or not, I don't know, but it's not true. And the most important part of this is it goes against the paternal family policy of never criticizing Mike McQuarrie because they unfortunately got duped into partially because of Joe, because Joe was a loyal guy and Joe didn't think that Mike was capable of this kind of thing. And Joe didn't understand all that was happening. And Joe was near death when all of this occurred and 84, 85 years old. So, but the reality is, this goes against the Paterno family policy for Sue Paterno to email this to a person integral to the case. And we have that. We also have incredible audio from Ira Lupert, the chairman at one point of the Board of Trustees from Penn State, making it clear that he believes that the settlements that he was in charge of, he was directly in charge of the settlements, that some of these guys were on, quote, the gravy train, 
that they exaggerated, that Joe Paterno and the administrators were, quote, great men who simply made a, a judgment error. And frankly, uh, when you listen to it carefully, <laughs> it, it's not even obvious to me he even uh, believes that Jerry Sandusky is guilty because his rational rationalization or rationalizing or his rationale for why Sandusky must be guilty is a completely circular argument. Basically, he says that, uh, you know, the administrators would not have pled guilty if Jerry was innocent, which is, it's, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> that's, that's not how this works. This was, that, was, that happened because of the polluted jury pool, which happened because of five years of incredibly bad publicity. And Ira Luper should have more information about what really happened in this case than anybody else if it was real, because he was in charge of the settlements. He heard from all 36 of these guys that he paid off, and that's the best he's got. And, and, and by the way, of, of all these other settlement guys, each story is more ridiculous than even the 70s. They're all completely ridiculous. Many of them got absurd amounts of money. People who completely denied at the time, like Frankie Probst, completely denied on national television that anything had ever happened to them. Worst thing they said was that Jerry was clingy. Waits five years to put out a claim and gets paid $8 million. $8 million. This is a guy who claims now that he was abused up till his senior year in high school when he was a star tight end on his high school football team, whose nickname was Frank the Tank. And he's, he's getting sexually abused by an old man. They're never saying anything about it when the crap hits the fan. By the way, weeks after the crap hit the fan, he did a nationally televised interview. Proactively. Not somebody showing up at his doorstep and sticking a microphone in his face. Proactively. Doing this interview and saying, no, I was never abused. Guess who his lawyer is, by the way? Andrew Schumann. Okay, so we have all this, and we have Bob Rowe, and so we're going to put this all together and do a story. Now, trying to tell this story is exceedingly difficult. And Ralph and I both give it a shot, and we come up with very different visions. And long story short... We start to get into a lot of arguments and delays, and I, I, we're trying to get this thing out before the end of last year, partially because the Washington Post was about to do something that we weren't even sure if we wanted to beat them, but there was some sense of a competition there. Their investigation turned out to be utter crap and a waste of time, which was what I suspected. But... You know, every time we set somewhat of a deadline, something bad happens and nothing gets done. Ralph disappeared for a couple of weeks because he had a book coming out that he never told me was going to force him to disappear. So we missed November. Then I'm thinking, well, we got to hit uh, December or at the very least. You know, I said, we've got to hit the beginning of of next year. Uh, college football season is still going on. We've got to get this out because I kept worrying that if anything happens to Bob Rowe, we're toast. Because this was a black swan situation. There was there are no other person at a, at a major media outlet that's going to you know, allow us to do this. That's going to understand it because that's the biggest problem. Someone having the, the understanding and the balls. Very an impossible situation to find someone like that. 
especially that already had a relationship with Ralph. And at one point, I, I thought we had set a deadline to try to get this out the first thing in January. And in order to hit that deadline, since Ralph wasn't getting his ass in gear, I just said, okay, Bob, I'm promising you that by, I think it was December 18th, I'm going to get you a version of the story just so you know what we have and we can move from there. And so I just put it out, gave it to Bob and to Ralph on my own. And Ralph got put off by that somehow, to totally misinterpreted it, thought somehow I was hijacking the story when all I was trying to do was get the goddamn thing done and make sure we hit our deadline. And so then that caused Ralph to have another, uh, you know, uh, the panic attack and uh, you know he's i believe him to be bipolar and so he disappeared again so then that delayed us further then finally after he got his panties out of a wad uh ralph came back and said okay let's try to figure this out and you know i said look clearly what we're doing is not working so i'm gonna take one for the team here i'm gonna take myself effectively out of the process you and bob write it come back to me with additions, subtractions, factual inaccuracies, and I'll just I'll just eat a shit sandwich on this. I know it's not going to be right. I know it's not going to be the way it should be, but I just want this thing done. I just want it out. I'm not going to do anything to jeopardize this. So fine. They go ahead and they start doing this on their own. And frankly, I didn't like what they did. I mean, I, I mean you got to remember, this is all during the process of the Me Too situation because we're getting, you know, to me, I'm thinking, there's no way we're getting this out in the middle of Harvey Weinstein and everybody else. You know, and the whole world is is thinking everybody's a sexual abuser. And we're gonna and we're gonna tell them, oh, by the way, Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Good luck with that. And so that was on my mind. Um, but one of the things that really blew my mind was I thought, okay, when the Larry Nasser thing happened, I thought, okay, let's use this to our advantage. And so I said to Bob and Ralph, hey, Let's use this as the lead because the Larry Nassar gymnastics coach story shows what a joke the whole Penn State Sandusky thing is because there's nothing in common. Nothing when there should be massive amounts in common. It should be the exact same story. And instead, there's nothing that's the same. Ralph liked this idea. Bob did not at all and completely rejected it. And at that point, I realized, oh, so Bob's not very bright. I mean, and so now I'm like, okay, this thing, if it gets out, is not going to be very good. I mean, his lead, in my opinion, sucked. Uh, he wanted to do about the the Paterno statue, and I'm like, no one gives a damn about this Paterno statue anymore. But of course, at this point, we're still not thinking about the HBO Paterno movie as our hook because we're still we didn't even know for sure when that was coming out. We thought we we're going to get this out by you know early February. As a matter of fact, at one point, Bob says to me, why don't we go for February second? And this was, you know, in the middle of January. And I thought, wait a minute, hold on. The Eagles have got a hell of a chance to go into the Super Bowl. That's two days before the Super Bowl, which is a bad time to put anything out anyway. And if the Eagles are in the Super Bowl, we're going to lose the whole state of Pennsylvania. So he said, okay, fine. We'll, we'll go for, I think it was then uh, February 16th or something was going to be the target date to, to get this thing out finally. Well, as fate would have it, because anything that can possibly go wrong in this particular story will go wrong. The day after the Super Bowl, sure enough, what I had feared was going to happen and then told Ralph was going to happen because a lot of crap had been going on at Newsweek. It was clear something was not right. It was obvious there were a lot of stories surrounding Newsweek that did not seem good. 
Bob Rowe got fired. And Ralph called me and said, we got a problem. I said, we don't have a problem. We're dead. It's over. There is no hope now. And I was calm but furious with Ralph because the way I looked at this, and while I'm hardly blameless, I mean, there's no question I've made a bazillion mistakes in all this. The reality of how I viewed what had happened here was that, you know, basically I had a baby that I gave to Ralph to take to the hospital. And Ralph said, sure, I'll take it to the hospital. I'll get this done. And he stopped off in a bar somewhere uh, and uh, had a few drinks and wasted his time. And the baby ended up dying on the doorstep of the hospital. And frankly, I don't think Ralph even necessarily disagreed with that analogy. But we weren't going to give up until we were 100% sure we were dead. Because that's always been my theory in life and my theory on this particular situation. And, uh, and much to my surprise, those who took over for Bob Rowe at Newsweek still expressed strong interest in the story. And I'm like, oh, God, because I had gone through the catharsis of giving up. I had said, there's no hope here. There's no hope that this is going to happen because without Bob, push comes to shove. Somebody is going to object. There's no way you can get through a minefield of a major media organization like Newsweek, even though Newsweek isn't what it used to be. Even one in chaos you're never going to be able to get through without any major blowback on a story this controversial and this against the conventional wisdom. It's just not possible. And when that happens, we're not going to have the boss. We're not going to have anybody to push it through. And so I got allowed myself to get sucked back in because I thought, what else do I have to lose? let's give this everything we have. So we basically start the whole fucking thing over again with a new editor, Bob's number two, a guy by the name of Ross Scheiderman. And uh, Ross seemingly gets it. Ross even apologized. I don't know if apology is the right word, but Ralph even, uh, even acknowledged to Ralph Cipriano. Ross did. He acknowledged to Ralph and then later to me that he had screwed up himself when he reported on this story back when it first happened in 2011, 2012, and that he regretted that he had bought into this false narrative. And he, it was clear that he obviously knew that we had proven the case. That was overwhelmingly obvious. And he was most excited, as Bob was, with this fake accuser story. That was going to be the star of the whole, the whole attraction in their minds. Bob loved it. Bob had been in contact with... The fake accuser was trying to be very protective of the fake accuser. Ross loved the fake accuser story. He also loved the fact that he thought we had proven that the current date of the so-called Mike McQuarrie episode, February 9th, 2001, is wrong. And that the real date is actually December 29th of 2000, which is incredibly important. It's not just a logistical situation because it completely changes the narrative because it means that Mike McQuarrie sat on this story for like five or six weeks before going to Joe Paterno. And why would he go over to Joe Paterno? Well, because the day before a job opened up when Kenny Jackson left Penn State to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers. The wide receivers coaching job opened up the same job Mike would get. Not then, but three years later, three years later. Mike doesn't get the job, which, by the way, is not consistent at all with a cover-up. 
because that's the first thing that would happen in a cover-up is Mike McCreary would have said, been told, congratulations, Mike, you've been doing a great job. Thanks for coming to us with this. Uh, just keep it to yourself. And by the way, you're the new wide receivers coach. None of that happened. None of that happened. But Ross was completely convinced that he said that was the key to the whole case, this new date that we had. Then he believed that we had proven. So now we find out that the Paterno movie is coming out. And it's going to be April 7th. And so now we have our news hook. So now we're focused on, okay, we're going to do this. And everybody at Newsweek seems completely on board. We're going to do this. And we're going to do this just before the movie. But when? Well, in the midst of the chaos of Bob Rowe's firing, and by the way, Bob Rowe got fired for investigating his own parent company in a way that was actually quite courageous and something that got a lot of credit when it happened. Uh, so it wasn't like he did anything wrong or nefarious. He got, he got fired for doing the right thing. Anyway, because of the chaos of his firing and the firing of some other people at Newsweek, they had a very strange publishing schedule scheduled for March. They were going to have deadlines for their, their newsstand subscription, their, their magazine, as opposed to the online version, on March 10th, March 16th, and March 30th. And... Ross said, okay, well, we can either do the 16th, we can either close on the 16th or the 30th. And I immediately told Ross, we've got to close on the 16th for two reasons. One, if we miss the 16th, we have the 30th as a backup because that still gets us out before the movie. But more importantly, and I didn't tell Ross this, but I told Ralph this, I said, in fact, I was looking at an email that I specifically said this today as I was reviewing some stuff for this show. I actually say to Ralph, if we miss the 16th, it will doom us because that weird schedule is giving them an extra week to think about this. And with an extra week to think about this, they will figure out a way to chicken out. And Ralph said, well, you might be right. Of course, I've been right about almost everything in this whole goddamn fiasco. And I could tell that Ross was not committed to the 16th. And so that really worried me and bothered me because it's kind of like, you know, it's why, uh, to use a sports analogy, it's why you ice the kicker, right? Or why you call timeout with the guy on the free throw line. You want him to think about it because if you think about it, something might, some worm may get in the brain there and then everything might change. Well, effectively, that two-week period of time was icing the kicker. Because we were, if we had gone on the 16th, there, w- there wouldn't have been enough time. They would have just, let's just get it out there and let's just do it. So last week, I would say this was uh, eight or nine days ago, as I'm doing this podcast today on uh, March 30th, the, um, it was that we had the first sign of trouble. Now, it wasn't big trouble, but it was, it was clear that we had a problem. And that is that we had always been told and always presumed, and rightfully so, that this was going to be Newsweek's cover story. Because this was going to be the largest story they've ever done in their modern history. It was going to be like 16,000 words in the magazine and almost 20,000 words online. That's unprecedented. And frankly, we were having a very difficult time keeping it just to that because we have so much stuff. We could do 60,000 words on this. Easy. I mean, we're just giving them the tip of the freaking iceberg, effectively, of what we have and uh, of stuff that's interesting and relevant and compelling in this case and of a, of, of a somewhat of a bombshell nature when you put it all together in context. 
So we always just presumed, or at least I did, you can't do a 16,000-word story in a magazine and not be the cover. It's like, that would be ludicrous. Well, Ross uh, calls me up and says, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to do... It was weird, actually. We were, we were talking about another subject, and he casually mentions, as if it's not a big deal, oh, by the way, we're going to put Vladimir Putin on the cover. But you guys will still be the header. At the top of the magazine, it'll say, what really happened at Penn State? Question mark. Probably not what you think. And I'm like, oh, God. Okay. So immediately I'm thinking, somebody within the power structure at Newsweek does not want this to happen. And that this is a compromise. Now, in other words, okay, you can go ahead and do this, but just don't put it on the cover. Uh, and, you know, they thought, well, you know, Putin always sells a lot of copies, apparently. So we'll put, put Putin on the cover. And I'm like, okay, I can, I'm not happy about that. I can at least live with it because all I really care about is getting the information out there. Because I'm looking at this very, very long term. I'm looking at this years from now. And having the names uh, of the accusers out there would theoretically change everything eventually. Because people close to them would start to go, wait a minute, you're a Jerry Sandusky accuser? You never say anything bad about Jerry. And, and by the way, where's you know that's how you got your $8 million? And that, that's going to create pressure on these guys. And eventually someone's going to crack under pressure because that's what happens to white trash under pressure. It cracks. That's why we have the TV show Cops. Okay, so that's all I've ever wanted in this case is just a little bit of pressure on the white trash of this case and watch the hilarity ensue. So I, all I really wanted was something in the magazine. Now, interestingly, because I don't think Newsweek's going to survive much longer, all I cared about was, was in the magazine. I didn't care that much about online because, frankly, I think online might disappear fairly soon if Newsweek ends up going under. So I only cared about what was in the magazine, and I had to do some horse trading to make sure that the imp incredibly important stuff, like the 70s accusers and the, the Lockhaven accusers, by the way, the five guys from the small town of Lockhaven, $35 million in settlements. Five guys. Only one of them was a trial accuser, Aaron Fisher, victim number one. My view is that the other four realized Aaron was a fraud, probably because of me, ironically enough. I, these guys actually ought to be tipping me because here's what happened. They realized Aaron was a fraud and they thought, oh, wow, if Aaron's a fraud, this is free money. I knew Jerry or some of them didn't even know Jerry. We have one, one of them. We, I've, I've aired this interview before. Their baby mama is on record saying he told me he made the whole story up and stayed up for three nights so he could cry to Penn State making up a story about Jerry Sandusky. He got $5 million. Five guys from Lockhaven. But anyway, I digress. So I, I, all I wanted was the names out there. The other thing that they did, which was a huge alarm bell, especially in retrospect, is that the version of the story that, that had already been meticulously vetted, edited, I mean, billions, zillions of questions, hours and hours of work on the part of Ross, the Newsweek editor, and Bob the, before him. This was incredibly meticulously vetted. Uh, in, the, in the process of this, we had come up with a version where the last line, and we had fought about this and we thought we had won, the last line of the bulk of the story came from the former NCIS federal agent, John Snedden, who investigated this whole case, in order to renew Graham Spanier, president of Penn State's, former president of Penn State's uh, federal national security clearance, and did so because he found there to be no scandal. We have a quote from him ending this that Jerry Sandusky is almost certainly innocent. 
Now, that's perfectly reasonable and legitimate. We have a very credible source, the guy who investigated this for the federal government. He says Jerry Sandusky is almost certainly innocent. And they wanted to take it out. And we thought we had won this battle, and then finally we lost it. When we lost the cover, they also took that out. And now I'm thinking, okay, they are afraid of the story. They are afraid of this story. They don't want it on the cover, and they don't want to even have somebody else. Forget about us as the writers. They don't want anybody saying that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. Even though if you read this, which you'll be able to do at my website fairly soon, the uh, if you read it, you can't come to any other conclusion. That's the whole point of this. Even though we don't say it, and we don't even, I mean, it's all very benignly written and uh, it's just the facts, man. Just the facts. And uh, when they did that, I'm like, okay, we could be in big trouble here. Uh, and I told them, I said, I, this is the, the, my, the last straw for me. I'll accept this, but no more bleeding. If there's any more bleeding, I'm out. Which means everything that I'm responsible for in this story is out. And I made that very clear, and they wouldn't make any promises, but they thought, you know, Rouse thought that that would be the end of it because he actually said to me he didn't think that the lawyers would have any big problems because they had already meticulously edited and vetted this thing. There was nothing that he saw as a red flag for the lawyers, which is the last part of this process. The way this works is the editorial staff goes through it with a fine-tooth comb, and then just to make sure there's nothing in there that can get anybody clearly sued in a legitimate way, they give it to the lawyers. And normally, in 99% of the cases, it's a pure formality just to make sure there's nothing in here that is clearly actionable from a legal standpoint. And we knew that we were going to get the third degree, but Ralph had been through this process before in other stories for Newsweek and had gotten through it fairly, you know, unscathed. Well, this past week on Monday... This is how in, uh, far advanced this whole thing got. I had a conversation with the guy who prints and distributes the Newsweek magazine, a guy by the name of Thomas Smith. So he's not even on the editorial side. This is the printer about me buying extra copies of the magazine and also urging him to make extra copies available in Pennsylvania because I figured there was going to be a greater demand. He already he didn't know me, but he already knew about the story. I think he even knew about the, the header at the top of the, the cover. And he'd already talked about potentially getting more copies in Pennsylvania. So this thing was, this was not just a, you know, hey, we might do this. This, this is happening. This is happening. And I, at that point, that was really the first time I thought, well, crap, if it's gotten to the printer, then this is going to happen. Well, at the very same time, that's when the lawyer starts to give Ralph the third degree. Now, I'm not part of this process. I didn't ask to be, nor was I asked to be. And I was okay with that because Ralph had gone through this before and because I know myself well enough to know that I, I'm not going to be good at this. <laughs> I am not going to be good at refraining from, from telling some moron to, you know, to go fuck themselves when they ask a really stupid question. So I know this. So... I am okay with Ralph, who's got a much different mentality, to go ahead and, and be the guy who takes the brunt. Well, Ralph had no idea it was what was coming. And it turns into a complete shit show. 
And in retrospect, it becomes very obvious very quickly that somebody is out to get the story because they're holding us to a standard that is beyond insane, beyond insane. And this is a 16,000 plus word story, depending if you're talking about the online version or the magazine version, you know, being forced to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt, every sentence is just, it's not possible. You can, it would take years in order to do that. It got to the point, and Ralph said he knew we were in big trouble. Um, when they actually asked the question, the lawyer did, they actually asked the question, how can we prove that the medical records that we have for Jerry Sandusky from the key period of time from 2006, 2008, were not forged by his wife, Dottie? Can you imagine? Can you can you prove that Dottie and if you know, I think Ralph said, have you ever spoken to her? <laughs> because I mean, she's the church lady. I mean, it, it would never have the ability to do this. Trust me. And not to mention they've got stamps on them. I mean, they're signed by doctors. I mean, it, it, it's, it's just, it was beyond. It's just flat out ridiculous. And this was just one example. So now they're, they're killing Ralph you know, a death of a thousand cuts. And at some point, now I know Ralph well enough to know that uh, when Ralph goes silent, it's bad news. <laughs> uh, and he's going very silent. And I'm like, uh-oh. So on my birthday, I call him. Uh, he didn't even want to talk. And then I knew that was really bad. I said, he's telling me at some point, in his mind, and he never, you know, I'll never know why. And it's, it's amazing how often in life, the biggest decisions that occur, you have no idea even who made them, how they were made. And I'm, I'm sure in this case, they were made by people who knew nothing. That's the most frustrating thing. People who knew nothing about the case, nothing about the facts, nothing about the people involved are making those important decisions. But at some point in Ralph's mind, it shifted from the lawyer having to prove that the story shouldn't run to us some having how having to prove to the lawyer that the story should run. And at that point, I knew we're toast. And the reason why we're toast is because we don't have Bob Rowe. This was always going to be my fear because this is the way this works in life, especially in the news media. If the boss, if everybody knows that the boss has a particular position on something, and in this case, it's his idea. He's the one that commissioned it. He's got his skin in the game. Then that keeps everybody surrounding the boss from trying to kill it, right? Because he's the boss. So no one wants to cross the boss. But in this case, we had lost the boss. So there was nobody with any skin in the game. And as soon as everybody in that room... You know, Ross and the other Newsweek editors sees that the wind has changed direction. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to go right with the direction of the wind because they've got no skin in this game. This is they don't give a shit about the people involved in this story. And what's really depressing is they don't even care about the fake accuser who ended his sting operation at their advice. They specifically told Ross, told Ralph that we should end 
the interaction, that the fake accuser should end his interaction, even though he had been advised by his attorney, not just advised, he had been connected via his attorney to the attorney general's office of Pennsylvania for the purpose of filing a, a criminal complaint against Jerry Sandusky. This is the fake accuser with emails. Shubin emailing the lead detective, putting his client in touch with the attorney general's office because he's outside the statute of limitations and then doing so for the purposes of filing a criminal complaint, which would be false, against Jerry Sandusky with, I guess, the theoretical possibility that Penn State may decide, hey, if you go away, we'll give you some money. But we ended that. The fake accuser ended that because Newsweek advised him to. Ross did. And, he, and, and they apparently didn't care about that because humanity means nothing anymore. Morality means nothing. So as I'm realizing that we're toast, I tell Ralph on Wednesday afternoon, let's pull the story. I want to pull the story because if we pull the story, at least then they can't claim that they pulled the story. Because it was, you know, somehow a crap story after five months of vetting that they're going to suddenly decide that this was a, you know, not a credible story, which is total bullshit. But that's the way they're going to be, because as soon as their self-interest changes, every, you know, all the rats are going to jump off the ship. And Ralph didn't think that was a bad idea, but Ralph is a very naive guy and wanted to, you know, continue it going till the very end. And I even woke up at 3.30 in the morning the next day and emailed uh, Ralph. Uh, he's on the East Coast and wakes up early. I said, you know, can we talk? Because it was clear to me we had to pull the story. Well, sure enough, that morning, uh, Ralph finally calls me and says, yeah, um, they decided that uh, they were freaked out. Ironically enough, they were freaked out by the fake accuser. <laughs> they were fake freaked out by, a, which was what they had loved uh, from for months. They had loved this. Uh, the uh, they were freaked out by me. Like this is a shocker that you know that I had expressed an opinion on the case previously. Really, this is news. This is news. And by the way, so has every other reporter who's ever reported on this case. And oh, by the way, are you supposed to? Am I supposed to believe that you're going to devote your entire life? to reporting on a story on which you have no opinion? If I don't have an opinion, why would I give a shit about the story? I mean, that, that, that was insane. They, were, they went after Ralph and whether or not, uh, you know, he, he has a thing against sex abuse victims. I mean, it was obvious that they were in total rationalization mode, that they were deciding that, okay, we now no longer want this thing to run, so now we got to figure out a way to kill it, which in a story like this is exceedingly easy to do. Especially when they know that no other media outlet is going to rush to our defense. See, normally, if this was a normal case, there would be some fear that Newsweek would have with, that if other media outlets found out that they chickened out, you know, kind of like the reverse Ronan Farrow situation with the Harvey Weinstein at NBC, there would be some blowback. But in this case, there's not going to be any blowback. In fact, they'll get applauded for having the, oh, the wisdom to reject the, the horrible story that was going to cause so much more suffering for these poor accusers. It's all bullshit. And so uh, Ross ends up calling me. And this is the nightmare of my life. This is how much of a nightmare my life is and how bad my luck is. So Ross calls for the perfunctory, uh, you know, we fucked you um, call. And I, I, I've never understood how it is 
and I've had this occur so many times in my life where people fuck you and then they want you to make them feel better about them having fucked you. I've never understood. Wait a minute. You, you only get it one way. If you want to fuck me, fine. That's your, that's your prerogative. You got to do what you got to do. Everyone's got to look out for themselves. I realize truth doesn't matter anymore. Journalism doesn't matter. Right and wrong don't matter. I, I get all that. You, you don't give a crap about the fake accuser that you, you've screwed over. I, whatever. I, I got it. But I'm not going to let you feel better about it. Well, here's the bad luck part. So Ross calls, and the instant he calls, this is like at 7.15, 7.20 in the morning, something like that, my five-year-old daughter, who's on spring break, comes into my office and wants to talk on the phone and will not leave. And the more I'm trying to get her to leave, the more she doesn't want to leave. And so now here in what ends up being a three-minute conversation after all this work, all this aggravation, me just trying to even get some semblance of an explanation. I can't even do that because I got my five-year-old daughter breathing down my neck almost, or actually in tears, because I won't let her talk on the phone. <sighs> and at one point, uh, Ross was you know, trying to backtrack on the fact that he had been convinced that uh, we had proven the case. And I said, Ross, you're lying. You're, you're lying. You're rationalizing because now you need... You need to feel better about yourself. And at that point, he just hung up. Just hung up. Not even, you know, goodbye, nothing. Just hung up. So that was the end of that. And um, and so, you know, I, I, I wanted to have uh, Ralph uh, on this podcast because Ralph had uh, promised to be on the podcast. And at one point, when it was clear to me last week that this was going to go badly, I just didn't know how badly. I didn't know this badly. I told Ralph, you know, just to be clear with you, to be up and up, because I'm a very straightforward guy, even when this comes out, there's a good chance I'm going to blast the hell out of Newsweek for their cowardice on the cover and the Snedden quote and just the overall botching of the story and fear of it. And Ralph told me directly, quote, he said, if you do that, I will give you a one-line quote. It's all true. Unquote. And so I reminded Ralph of that when he started to uh, hem and haw about not coming on the podcast. And interestingly, he told me that Ross and Newsweek asked him not to come on the podcast, which is odd because how would they even know that he was going to be on the podcast? But more importantly than that, that to me is the smoking gun of Newsweek's own insecurity. They know what they've done. They know they've wimped out. If if they felt like they had done the right thing, they wouldn't give a shit about whether or not Ralph comes on this stupid little podcast. But they asked him not to. And Ralph, being the puss that he is, Ralph says, okay, I won't. Then I convince him, Ralph, you got to do this. You, you can't kill my baby and not come to the funeral. Yeah, you, got, you promised you'd do this. All I'm going to ask you to do is just lay it out for us, you know, from your perspective, what actually happened here. I'll do the trashing of Newsweek. I don't care. Well, Ralph effectively said he would, but he, he held on to some, let me get back to you. And I knew, I knew as soon as he didn't give me a hundred percent that he was going to cave because everyone caves. Because as soon as self-interest shifts, that's all people care about is what's in their own self-interest. And he still owed money by Newsweek, money that he doesn't think he's going to get. But, you know, his wife has given him all sorts of crap over this. My wife has given me all sorts of crap over this. The reality is that, 
you know, he wants to try to get paid. I, I'm sure they must have threatened him he wouldn't get paid if he if he did the podcast. Uh, and so I was not surprised at all when I got an email, like two lines saying on the advice of my attorney, I can't do your podcast, blah, 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 you know, uh, and, um, and I, I didn't even respond <laughs> after, after over five months, even longer than that, but five months of talking to each other almost every day, exchanging over a thousand emails, being through thick and thin, being in the foxhole of all foxholes. I doubt he and I will ever communicate again. Just because of that email. Because to me, that's the ultimate betrayal. You know what? Look, I'll forgive you for not getting this done. I'm as responsible as you are. It just didn't happen. We were in an insurmountable situation. But for you not to even come on the podcast, screw you. And unfortunately, that causes massive problems going forward. Uh, not that there already aren't massive problems going forward. Because... Essentially, this is the end of the road for the story. There's no, there's no place to go. There's no, there's no way for this to ever get out now in a way that will be taken nearly as seriously or as credibly as it should. Because you need, the way this game works, as stupid as it is, you need some sort of a mainstream news media outlet to provide cover. Now, I'm fully aware that even if this had happened as scheduled as it should have, in the short run, nothing good was going to happen. In fact, it probably would have been a step backwards because we would have gotten attacked and destroyed and killed. But it would have been out there in a way that someone down the road, maybe in the 10th anniversary of this story in 2021, somebody could have used. And I would have been happy, by the way, if it was not me. You know, I'm sure there are going to be people who will blame me and my presence because I'm so controversial that that made it more difficult for Newsweek to go ahead with this, which is crap because they've known about my, <laughs> my existence for five months. But you know what? I would have been perfectly fine. I would have been happy for someone else to tell this story. However, there was no way for that to happen because I had all the information and I needed to have at least some semblance of a con control over it because I did not trust Ralph. Uh, not because, you know, I didn't trust him as a person, although maybe I shouldn't have, but he just didn't understand the full story. He made numerous mistakes. There, there, if I had been totally out of the process and just said, hey, oh, good luck with that. Let me know how it goes. It would have been a complete disaster from a factual standpoint, not to mention wouldn't have told the story properly. So I needed to have some semblance of control. And the only way for me to have some semblance of control was for to have my, my name on this. Plus, the original plan was once this came out, we would do some sort of major media interview together. And that's when I could really go to town and change the whole narrative and create a, a crap storm. And that could only happen if my name was on it. To be clear, I purposely didn't get paid for this. I doubt I'll even get my expense check at this point. So... I did not want to get paid. I've never made a freaking dime from this story. I've lost lots of money. I've lost lots of opportunities. My life has been destroyed. My marriage has been shattered. My children will suffer for, from this for many, many years. I will live with this for the rest of my life. So there, I, there's no one way anybody can possibly claim that I've done anything to try to benefit myself. The only skin I had in this game personally was I thought maybe, just maybe, if this thing went off even remotely as planned, I could get some of my dignity back. That's all I cared about. 
is that maybe, just maybe, I wouldn't have to deal with this, this ball and chain around my ankle or around my neck on everything I do. Oh, he's the guy who's the Jerry Sandusky supporter. He's a nut job, a conspiracy freak, a loony bin. No, I just happen to be right because I know more about it than anybody else. And I still care about the truth. And what should be, I'm not looking for hosannas, but my, uh, my role in this whole thing is probably the greatest work I've ever done or ever will do. And maybe the greatest work anybody in journalism has done in recent time. And yet, which is symbolic of the state of journalism and the state of our society, I've gotten nothing, nothing but negative feedback, impact on my life, and it will continue probably till the day I die now. Because now there's no hope. And there's a big difference. You know, hope is such an incredibly important commodity. When there's just even a sliver of hope, that's really all I need. It's just a sliver of hope. A sliver of hope that I might get my dignity back. A sliver of hope that this story might somehow get salvaged. I was okay. That's going to be my most difficult challenge going forward, is knowing that there's no hope going forward. And even worse than all that, psychologically is, I can't even fully wash my hands of it because there's still loose ends I got to tie up. I got to worry about what to do with the fake accuser. And my plan, probably sometime this week, maybe as early as Monday, probably no later than Wednesday unless something dramatic happens, I'm going to release the final version of what Newsweek was going to publish. And I'm going to do that at framingpaterno.com. And I don't give a shit. <laughs> I don't give a shit what Ralph or Newsweek or anybody else thinks. People are going to, you know, freak out about it because there's information in there that comes from, uh, you know, very secretive sources. I'm not going to release any of the core uh, documents yet, largely because I'm concerned about legal ramifications for the person who leaked them. Uh, I may release a couple of documents that are tangentially related just to show that I'm not full of crap. But, this, you know, and the story as it's written, I'm not even that proud of because I didn't really write it, most of it. I was just trying to manage it, make sure that all the, ingredients, the correct ingredients were in there, all the facts were right. But it's so powerful, it doesn't matter. It's almost so powerful that it doesn't matter how badly it's written or how poorly the, the narrative that was chosen is. And ironically, I think that's what screwed us. I think if our story had not been nearly as powerful, Newsweek would have run it and just said, boy, there's some interesting questions being raised about this. But because it was so powerful and it's so overwhelming and so obvious, they couldn't get around the idea that they were going to get accused of saying Jerry Sandusky's innocent, which of course he is. And that's the great irony. If, if we didn't have nearly as, as, as strong of evidence, if we didn't have as strong a narrative, if it wasn't so overwhelming... I really think we could have done this. The other mistake we made, and I said this to Ralph a long time ago, and then we revisited this again when Bob Rowe got fired. In retrospect, I think we would have had a shot if we had only narrowly focused on the Penn State settlements, just on what a fraud they were, and not directly dealt with Sandusky's innocence, simply focused on how the settlements show that Paterno and the administrators were railroaded and that here's what we found out about this and try to keep that more narrow, which would have been maybe 40, 50 percent 
of the story that we have. It would have made it smaller, and it wouldn't have been as large a chunk to swallow all at once. Whether or not that would have changed anything in the in the long run, I don't know, but I think we would have at least had a shot. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, I don't even remember who. I know it was my idea. Ralph liked the idea, but we never... It kind of, things just kind of spiraled out of control. And, you know, they fell in love with everything. They kept falling in love with everything we had. And now we have this monstrosity and we were trying to jam an elephant through a doorway. So anyway, I want to finish this by apologizing to a lot of people who have been really uh, desperately hoping that this was going to happen. I'm sorry we could not make it work. Uh, we tried everything we could. I know I did. Uh, even to the point where um, I, I swallowed my ego and tried to take myself out of it, knowing that I was going to be a detriment. I did everything I possibly could have. Um, uh, so I have no regrets as far as the effort is concerned, but I am sorry we couldn't bring it home. Uh, and uh, if you're interested in the truth of this, the only place you're going to get it is framingpaterno.com. Again, that'll be put out sometime this week. Also, make sure you check out the other edition of the podcast this week that directly relates to the, the Paterno movie, which we will put out uh, at some point during the week. Make sure you pay attention to my Twitter feed at Zygmunt Freud and on Facebook. You can follow me there and make sure you share this via Twitter, Facebook, or word of mouth, what have you. Uh, as That's all I ever ask of people is if you, if you value what, what uh, this truth is, please share it because it's the only way anyone's ever going to hear about it. And, um, and there's certainly a lot of... Uh, a lot of people who are really relying on this truth eventually coming out. It's not going to come out in the way it should now, uh, but at least it will be somewhere. And, um, and there's a good chance that FramingPaterno.com is going to last longer than Newsweek.com. So <laughs> there's at least that <laughs> for whatever that's worth. Uh, but anyway, so uh, if you can share this uh, podcast, I'd be greatly appreciated. Also, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps at night, when you sleep, you use sheets. Please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is FramingPaterno.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.